just learn from my mistake here. You know, I found out this man who I used to work with, I found out earlier in the year that he had stage four cancer. And I just kept on putting off uh, reaching out to him. I just kept on saying, oh, I'll do it next week. Oh, I'll do it next week. Oh, I'll do it next week. And this last week, uh, I received word that he died. Don't do that. I'm never going to do it. I've just been beating myself up since Thursday. I just uh, now I, I had I had talked to this man at length. Actually, one evening we went to dinner together about the Lord. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about reaching out to someone when they're in this really difficult stage of their life and trying to bless them. So don't do what I did this time. <laughs> and I I just um, you know if if you hear someone who's a loved one. Who I worked for this guy ten years ago, but I, I was fairly close uh, with him at the time, and really, really regretting not being able to bless him. So, for what that's worth, if it if sharing this with you makes you uh, do the right thing, uh, it was all worth it. So, anyway, just wanted to share that with you. Okay, the book of Ecclesiastes. The Book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon. Verse 1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, this book is either one of the most depressing books that you could ever read and will get you just over-the-top discouraged, or it will be, it is one of the most blessed books, and actually a book that will, the word blessed means happy. Uh, It will make you as happy as any book in the Bible, and I really, I really mean that. It is a picture of a life without Christ. That is what this book is about. So it is a book that if you read, you know, we, we sometimes need to remember, particularly if we've been walking with the Lord for um, a, a few years, we have to remember what it would be like without Christ. Sometimes we forget that. Well, if you need some help remembering what it's like to be without Christ, this is a great book to read. It's a great book to read. It's utter, total hopelessness, almost the entire book. That's what it's about. And and I'm 100% serious. It's a book that actually makes me happy when I read it. It's like, wow, this is what I have been saved from. This is what I have been saved from. I work in that direction. And so uh, verse 2 says, Vanity of vanities. The, another translation is soap bubbles. Soap bubbles and soap bubbles, meaning just empty. You know, it appears like something, but they just go push, and there, there's uh, nothing left there. That is the conclusion uh, that he makes about uh, regarding life. He set about to try to find meaning in life, trying to find a definition of reality. And this is where he 
comes to. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. For what profits profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun also goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place from which the rivers come. There they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. This book is about Solomon's journey into carnality and the conclusions that he drew from that. As we studied when we were in the book of Deuteronomy, and that was a few years ago, in fact, when we were in Deuteronomy, we probably had this wall and one right in back here where that pillar is. Real small room here, and the foyer in the back was just sort of empty space that we didn't uh, use. But when we were in Deuteronomy, we uh, studied that the kings of Israel there were three things they were prohibited from doing. What were they? Number one, what? Well, multiplying horses. Number two, not that's a good answer, but that's not from Deuteronomy 17. What's the next one? Multiplying horses. Multiplying wives. Multiplying wives. And the last one was multiplying silver and gold. So multiplying horses, multiplying wives, multiplying uh, gold and silver. What did he do? What did Solomon do? All three of them. And also, well, actually it was David that took a census. But... uh, David, his father. I don't know that Solomon ever did that, but just this amazing journey into a complete, total backslide. And he knew the law. He knew it. He knew it, and and it's amazing because at the beginning of his reign, the Lord comes to him. He's a very young man, probably 16, 17 years old when David died, and God asked him, you know, ask for whatever you wish, it'll be granted to you. And in humility, he asked for wisdom. He's probably pretty terrified uh, because what am I going to do? I'm 16, 17 years old. I'm king of this great nation because by then, I mean, it was a great nation. I mean, it was a powerhouse, Israel was. Uh, David had really expanded the kingdom to really close to the boundaries that Moses had talked about that would eventually... Um, eventually Israel was going to possess. And he asked for wisdom. And God said, well, because you didn't ask for riches or a long life, I'll give you those too. But he went on, and uh, I'll just read a few verses for you uh, from from the the life of, uh, of Solomon. It says in 1 Kings 
chapter 11, it says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. He married the daughter of Pharaoh. He also liked the Moabitess women, the Ammonites, the Edomites, Sidonian, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them. And Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wife, wives turned away his heart. So he disobeyed that one from Deuteronomy, wives. And the next one uh, was uh, from Deuteronomy that we talk, talked about, uh, multiplying uh, horses. It says in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 9, verse 25, Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities. So he didn't stop at just having a lot of chariots. He had chariot cities is what he, he built, uh, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king of Israel. And then with so that was number uh, two. He multiplied horses, and then he just multiplied the riches as well. It says, uh, he says in verse 15 of Second Chronicles chapter 1, also the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. And he made cedars as abundant as the sycamores, which are in the lowlands. Cedar, cedars being you know, a very sought-after kind of wood. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. Now, if you're going to have a throne of ivory, why would you cover it up with anything? Well, what's the point of it? Ivory? I mean, let's see the ivory, you know. Uh, But anyway, he overlaid it with gold. The throne had six steps with a footstool of gold, which were fastened to the throne. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. So whatever he drank out of was made out of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. That's where he lived. Actually, that I think may have been his summer house, the house of the forest of Lebanon. No, not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. So that is silver. I mean, you know, pretty, pretty crazy. And then if you remember it um, also, it says in the king ships uh, from Tarshish, every three years the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, Apes and monkeys. The King James says actually peacocks. Now, how one translator got monkey and the other peacock, I don't know. But uh, uh, anyway, he brought in all this other stuff. You know, it it, it was just his journey into outright rebellion and carnality. He is known for his wisdom, but yet he ends up the ultimate fool, and what's the lesson there? Where a person is strongest, where a person is strongest may inevitably be the place of greatest weakness. If you have a gift, 
talent in the world. Beware. Because to me, that could be the very, very thing that causes you to stumble and stumble tremendously in the area of your greatest strengths. We see this throughout the Bible. Noah was known for purity and righteousness, yet where did Noah fall? He became drunk, and it appears there was sexual sin there as well. Abraham's faith was his strength, yet he didn't wait on the Lord and took uh, Hagar. It was, well, it's practical. Well, don't, you know, take my... Take my maidservant, Abraham, told Sarah. And then the priest Ishmael, who are still living with the consequences to this day because of that. Moses, the meekest man on the face of the earth. He was such a gentleman, but he lost his temper and struck the rock when God said, just uh, speak to it. And it was prevented from going into the promised land. He also misrepresented, uh, he misrepresented God before the people. Peter, a man of courage, became a coward. So, you know, that's the man, Solomon, man of wisdom, wind up playing the fool. Wind up playing the fool. Anyone see that movie Secretarial yet? Is it, so have you been able to get that song out of your head, Oh Happy Day? Oh, oh man, it's, Oh Happy Day. That's right. They have this gospel song in this movie, Secretariat, and it has the greatest lyrics. It says in there, the chorus is that Jesus taught me how to watch and fight and pray. And it's just this gigantic African-American choir just like belting it out. It just makes you want to just scream to the Lord, you know, uh, this, this gospel song. He taught me how to watch fight and pray. That term watch, not used enough in the body of Christ anymore. Kind of like the word wait, waiting on the Lord. We don't hear enough about that. Watch. Jesus says watch and pray. And, and you know, that's what Solomon didn't do. He didn't watch. And what does that mean? It, it's sort of, it's taking heed to your spirit and, and, and taking heed to what the, the enemy, Satan, is, is trying to do. And, and, and to me, the one of the key things about watching is he's going to try to get you at your strongest area, your point of strength. That's where Satan's going to try to, to, to bring about the downfall. And as we watch, it's sort of like, you know what a watchman is. It's that same sort of you being a watchman of your own life under the uh, influence of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he, uh, that's what he, didn't do, and so he takes this just journey into carnality. Everything is vain. He 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 tries to uh, come up with meaning uh, uh, meaning for life apart from the Lord. So this book is either something that is going to make you very happy or or very depressed. Now. Uh, there is a, a there is a phrase that's used over and over and over and over again in this book, and it's in verse three. It says, "What profit has a man from all trading in which he toils under the sun?" So you're going to see that phrase "under the sun," "under the sun," "under the sun" throughout this book, and hence that was Solomon's error. 
he was trying to look, sounds kind of corny, but he was trying to look for reality and meaning under the sun, S-U-N, rather than sun, S-O-N. You're not going to find it. And the thing that makes this book so valuable is that Solomon was one of the few people who actually was in a position to try everything under the sun. Most of us will go to our deathbed we don't really even have the ability to try out everything under the sun because we're just not wealthy enough to do that. He actually had the ability to do it, and he and, and he fell uh, so fell so short. Everything under the sun was uh, disappointing. So. Let's just continue on. It says uh, in, oh, it's some interesting little tidbits here. In verse 6, it says, The wind goes um, towards the south and turns around to the north. The wind rolls around continually and comes again on its circuit or in currents. And so, if you're really digging deep here, you, you'll ask, if, if, if you're know anything about science, you may ask, well, how did Solomon know about wind circuits and wind currents? Good question. Because we really didn't know about, or scientists didn't really know much about them for I don't know how many thousand years after this. This is the Word of God. It's like in the book of Isaiah where it talks about the circle of the world long before that we knew, you know, man used to think that the world was, was flat. And, and, and one other here, it says, verse 7, all the rivers run to the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. So uh, some commentators look at this. It appears that he's talking about evaporation here. The rivers run into the sea. The waters evaporated, and they and just they return again. They, they go back and forth, back and forth. Another concept that was really uh, not understood either. And here, Solomon, I mean, he was the wisest man uh, in the world. He figured out a lot of things uh, before, uh, before, you know, he wrote, at the time that he wrote this book, at the time of, that he wrote this book. And it says in verse 9, That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. And so the thought is here, you may say, well, you know, what about computers? What about trains? And what about Internet and this type of thing? But the thought is here that there's no, not that there's never any inventions. I, I believe Solomon invented different things. It's just in, in, in terms of, is there anything that we can discover that 
is going to bring any kind of fulfillment, or are we just going to wind up in the same place that, you know, nothing has really changed here. We may have these new inventions, but when when all things are done, uh, I'm not any happy, happier as a result of it. I can say with full authority that all the technology that we have has not brought a scintilla greater amount of happiness in the world. And so, you know, that's, uh, that's the thought here. It says, is there any, uh, yeah, verse 10 again, is there anything uh, of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has been in ancient times, it has already been in ancient times uh, before us. And so, throughout, we have to be remembering remembering that if any man is in Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians, he is a new creation. So, this book is about a man's obsessive drive to figure out the meaning of life really apart from Christ, apart from God. There's a famous author who lived in the first half of the 20th century. His name was Thomas Wolfe. Anyone ever read his books? Well, I can only count on one to raise his hand for any of these things. I have two. He wrote Look Homeward Angel and You Can Never Go Home Again. Did he ever do this? Both of them. And uh, anyway, this guy is one of the most critically acclaimed writers in the United States, in the history of the United States, Thomas Wolfe. And he was just like, he was just on this obsessive search for meaning in life. And that's what his books were all about. He he, uh, was an agnostic. And it was really interesting. I don't know if you remember, Don, but towards the end of You Can't Go Home Again, he is sharing with some friend of his. It's a novel, but he puts himself in the novel. He's sharing with some friends of his how the book of Ecclesiastes is the best piece of literature in the history of the world. I mean, he was a, just this guy had, he was like Solomon. He had an incredibly high IQ and uh, he was a Harvard guy and, and, and this type of thing. Right, he tried to read every book in the Harvard Library. He did this type of thing, but he actually concluded that this book was the ba- greatest piece of literature that had ever been written. And uh, he, it's a pretty mar- remarkable uh, statement coming from this particular guy, but really, apart from Christ, it really is true in the sense that there's no better picture in the history of the world of what life apart Christ is. The picture is right here. And so, in verse 12, it says, I, the preacher, was king over uh, Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is under heaven. So, his first attempt to find satisfaction and meaning apart from God was philosophy. Philosophy. To discover the meaning of life through philosophy. And that's what it's referring here to. I try to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that was under heaven. This was a, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of men uh, by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under, uh, under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. 
What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. And so, here's what's important. This is the conclusion in, in verse 15 of someone who tries to figure out the meaning and reality of life through philosophy. They will come to the conclusion that he reaches in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. In other words, you, you can't fix any of it. You can't fix nothing. That's the conclusion a philosopher comes to. And that's why, you know, you meet philosophers, and they're usually pretty depressing people to, to hang around. Because they have come to this same conclusion. What is crooked cannot be made straight. A, a leopard can't, you know, get rid of its spots sort of deal. And, uh, you know, philosophy. It, 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 in theory, a lot of philosophy appears kind of attractive, but in reality, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And you read some, some of the famous last words of the world's greatest philosophers. Uh, philosophers. I always want to say philosophers. But that's something you eat at a Middle Eastern restaurant. It's a great Rami's in, on Harvard Street. Anyone ever been to Rami's on Harvard Street? Serious philosophers there, man. They are great. Albert Camus. Life is a bad joke. That's what he said on his deathbed. Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, life makes you want to vomit. Want to hang around a philosopher? There you have it, right there. It leads you to, philosophy leads you to tremendous cynicism, meaning a complete contempt or distrust of everything and everybody. Solomon pursued it and found that it does not make crooked things straight, or like like how this uh, is worded here in that conclusion. Verse 16, I commune with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. So uh, another another thing he tried was just becoming great. You know, fame, power. Actually, Thomas Wolfe actually uh, mentioned in his book that what the American I believe he said the American man wants more than anything else is fame. Uh, and I don't, you know, I, I think that may that may be true. I don't know. But um, Solomon realizes that through fame there is no satisfaction at all. But then his next attempt after sort of philosophy and fame, it says at the end of verse 16, then my heart ha um, has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive that this is all a grasping of wind. So the next thing he really tries is education. Education. And what did he find there? Grief. It says in verse 18, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he who, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And you meet some of these professional students that have like, you know, three PhDs and, and things like that. And and uh, there's also grief there. Uh, you know, if, you, if just accumulating knowledge, you know, after a while, there's just much sorrow there. There's, there's a lot of sorrow in it. And so that's what he co concludes um, with, 
you know, trying to find meaning in life just by pursuing education. Education. In chapter 2, he took a completely uh, diff- Oh, I was just going to also mention, you guys have probably heard this type of thing, that the highest suicide rate professionally is among uh, psychiatrists. And which is really quite amazing that, you know, you have have the the very person who is supposed to sort of, through education and philosophy, come up with a way to help people find satisfaction in life. But what, what happens? They don't have the answer. They have concluded that, look, who am I kidding? I don't have the answer. And, and it drives them uh, to suicide. You know, education is really interesting being in Haiti uh, that the, the poor people, as terrible as their condition is, oftentimes are, are, uh, are happy people. But you drive up the mountains. We were in Adelaide went all the way up to one of the top of the mountain where these giant, these huge villas overlooking the ocean there. Couldn't help but notice the educated classes and the, just the sorrow and the lack of, you know, Haitians, a lot of them have just a, just a more, just a lack of that education. The higher up the socioeconomic class that you go, same thing in America as well. So, but in chapter two, it takes uh, a, he takes a, a completely different direction. He goes for mirth, which is sort of, Laughter, you know, show up to the comedy house or whatever, and just try to, you know, as you know, kings used to hire jesters to come into their court and say jokes to sort of lift the countenance um, of the king. It says, I said in my heart, verse 1, come now, I will test you with mirth, which is kind of like laughter type of deal. Uh, Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was uh, vanity. And you probably have heard of stories of Johnny Carson and his, who epitomizes sort of mirth and humor more than Johnny Carson, but was notoriously an unhappy, depressed person. I think David Letterman has had similar issues. When I was a kid, John Belushi committed suicide. Freddie Prince committed suicide. Doesn't work. Sitting around trying to sort of crack jokes and and frivolity type of frivolous laughter, it's just going to make people more depressed. I'm telling you, this is a depressing book apart from the Lord. It goes from one thing uh, to the next. It said, yeah, I said of laughter, verse 2, I said of laughter, madness. And of mirth, what does it accomplish? Nothing. It's just all so shallow. Now, you can't want to insult, you know, you guys. And I know, but, but, but some of these comedy hours, just so unbelievably shallow. And he's coming to the uh, same conclusion here. It's just mad madness. What does it accomplish? It, it accomplishes nothing. And so then he moves from laughter to wine. I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine. Now, chapter 31 was of Proverbs was about the virtuous woman, and it was written to King Lemuel. And King Lemuel uh, 
it, it was actually written, chapter 31 of Proverbs was all King Lemuel's mother. Now, many people think that Lemuel, they, they don't see the name of a king in the line of Judah or Israel, the name of Lemuel. I think the best commentator, uh, I think the best interpretation of who Lemuel was was one of the kings. It was either Hezekiah or uh, uh, Solomon. Many people think it was Solomon. And his mother, remember at the beginning of chapter 31, before the virtuous wo uh, woman verses, what did it say? It says, don't give yourself over to wine. So here, you know, if that's true, here, here's Solomon for all, enough of the wisdom uh, of my mother. Uh, I'm just going to go for it. You know, I'm, you know, try to drown myself in wine and see if I can find satisfaction there. Does it work? It says, while guarding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days uh, of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself, verse 5, gardens and or orchards. Orchids? Orchards. Orchards. Always get that wrong. And I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. So this is talking about hobbies. Remember hobbies? And if you read about Solomon, he brought in with peacocks and monkeys and apes and all these animals from all. And he's a botanist. And here he's talking about hobbies. And, and, and you know, I, I feel... Genuinely sorry sometimes for people who are just—they have some hobby that's just becoming idle. You know, they fifty-seven Chevys or whatever, and, and and they just become obsessed with it. You know, they have three or four of them in, in their garage, and that's all they want to talk about. And 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 Solomon tried the same thing. He had enough money to try every hobby under the face of the earth. You know, if Solomon lived today, be like one of those guys hiring the Russians to go up in space. Well, maybe if I go up into space, maybe I'll find, you know, satisfaction in, in that to be, pay the Russians $20 million to, to go up in space. By the way, if you have that kind of money, you can go over to Russia and pay $20 million, you know, go up in a rocket. But you're not going to find satisfaction. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes uh, says. And then in verse 7, he's talking more here about riches. So God said he'd give him riches, but Solomon uh, took a, an inch and went, you know, tried to get a mile out of it. He says, I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house, yet I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men. Actually, that's, I skipped ahead there, but so riches is another thing. It, it doesn't work for him. All is vanity. Uh, but then here he gets into uh, music. I acquired male and female singers the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. And this is its own separate category, music. And 
I grew up in, uh, with, you know, with, with music and, and my family and, and playing different kinds of instruments and musical stuff. Never was really good at any, any musical instrument, but I grew up with it a lot. But you do have this phenomenon that people looking for sort of meaning in life just drown themselves in, in music. I mean, I, I remember friends actually still still know a guy. You'll go into his house, a thousand, two thousand records or CDs, uh, you know, just lining all the walls and just day and night trying to find. There is something about music that is special and rich. It was made, of course, to, to worship the Lord, but we've turned it into sort of a, a self-glorification thing. But Solomon tried that because he hired female and male singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. Of course, all these things can be a blessing with the Lord's when they're sanctified by the Lord. Someone was just quoting me this morning, the proverb that we that um, we studied from about a month ago, which said, when the Lord multiplies riches, there is, uh, or when the Lord multiplies riches or prospers you, there's no sorrow in it. There's no, you can actually enjoy being a wealthy person when the Lord makes you a wealthy person. And that, you know, that, that, that is absolutely, uh, is the case. So he tries music. Doesn't work. Verse 10, whatever my heart des- desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. From my heart, so my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all, all my labor. Then I looked on all the works which I had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed it was vanity and grasping for the wind, there was no profit in it. So here you have an interesting little insight. In verse 10 it says, I rejoiced in my labor. And that is absolutely is the case, and, and you see this a lot, and you see this in the lives of, of Christians who take a turn away from the Lord. They get involved uh, in a career, they get involved in the corporate life, and oh man, there is something intoxicating. You know, when you get into that corporate career or whatever, you're do- in a business and the business is doing well, well, it's beginning to thrive, you start rejoicing in it. You know, money starts falling out of the sky and there's purpose and people want to see you and, and, and all of a sudden you, be- you become a commodity. And people are really sort of after you. They want to hear your opinion on things. And, and, and so you, you, you rejoice, but after a while... It says, he looked at it and realized it was all vanity. And, and you know, I, I, I saw this very thing in the corporate world, having been there for almost 14 years. When, when you get up to the, when you start mixing with people at the very senior levels, you know, you realize, you know, people just begin to realize, wow, you know, this really isn't what everything that I thought it would be really isn't. Verse 12, Then I turn myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. 
for what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. So here's, here's just talking about something else, politics. A Christian who gets into politics needs to have a, a good perspective on that. And, and I think, and I wish more Christians would get into politics. But we just, I'm trying to convince my son to get into politics. Don't tell him it's okay. But uh, he'd be a great player on it. But you can get all, you know, legislation that is favorable to the Word of God. You can repeal all the legislation that is opposed to the Word of God, you know, in this type of thing. But if you don't have the right perspective, that too may destroy you because it can all be overturned. Now, that, that doesn't mean that you don't go for it to try to overturn bad legislation or to implement good legislation. It just means that can't be an idol either. And that's what Saul, yet another thing he tried, you know, he tried to sort of accomplish in the realm of government uh, good things, but he's, what he's saying here is that, you know, someone will succeed me and, you know, they'll just wind up doing uh, the same thing. They'll accomplish what, uh, what some earlier person did, which is pretty amazing because, yeah, you can go out and pass laws, but if you look back in history, those similar laws may have been passed a hundred years ago, but then they were repealed, and there's this same kind of uh, cycle. Then I saw the wisdom, verse 13, then I saw that wisdom excels folly, as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet, I put myself with you that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. In other words, he's saying he's going to die as well as the most foolish person on the face of the earth. They're, they're, they're both going to die. So what's the point? You might as well, ignorance is bliss. You might as well stay foolish and stupid. This is a depressing book. Uh, Thomas Wolfe is a pretty depressing guy to read. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? So it says, all now, all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. You know, I always think it's really interesting you know, I was a history major, and I still love history. And, and, and there's these people throughout American history, absolute total household names on their list. There was some guy in the beginning of the 20th century, Don, who I may not remember the guy's name, but he, he was practically a king. He was more powerful than everyone. He was a household name. Everyone's like, I can't remember his name, but you have to remember his name. If I said his name, no one here. No, no, it wasn't Cornelius Vanderbilt. This guy was Speaker of the House, like at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and, and it was before there were certain rules in the House. And so this guy just manipulated the whole system and only laws that he, he was a, he wasn't the president. He was just, he was in control of the floor of the House and what legislation was uh, um, brought before it. And he completely controlled what laws were implemented and manipulated the, the, the system through different kind of methods and household names. No one knows about them today. 
no one. I was looking. My aunt gave me this book because she gave me this book on the history of. It was like a pictorial history of actors and actresses since like 1840 or some crazy thing like that. Because some woman who was a famous actress in the late 1800s were related to her. You can see this picture uh, of this woman. And I'm looking through this book, and then it goes from theater to movies. And these household names that everybody knew about. Edwin Booth, who was John Wilkes Booth's brother, was Tom Cruise. Everybody knew about him. Everybody. He was just incredibly famous. He set some insane record for consecutive productions of Hamlet in New York. I, like 720 consecutive. Just some crazy, crazy thing. Maybe it wasn't that high, but it was like, you're kidding me. He did Hamlet that many times? But he was so popular, and the amount of money the guy was making was mind-boggling. Like for the 18... 50s and, uh, and, and 60s, and then after his brother assassinated the, the president, I think he, he even got more famous um, then. But actually, John Wilkes Booth also was a famous actor, also a household name. And I never knew that until uh, a couple of years ago when our, our kids and Stephanie and I, we listened to sort of an audio thing in the car about uh, his escape and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, that everyone knew him. Not everyone, but he was more or less a household name before he killed Abraham Lincoln. But the point is, is that what it says here in verse 16, For there is no more remembrance of the wise, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. So we set out to make a name for ourselves. You know, Thomas Wolfe said in his book that what, what every American really wants is fame. They set out for fame, but... It's going to mean nothing. How many people actually know the names of all eight of their great-grandparents in this room? Is there anyone who knows them? Does anyone know four of them? Does anyone know, someone knows one name, a great-grandparent. Right, but, but, but the point is, is you can't even go very far back in your own lineage. And so, you know, that is not something that... Um, uh, this is something that he's bringing out. And, and he goes on, verse 17, Therefore I hated life. Wow. I hated life. Because the work that was done under the sun, that's his problem. He's just trying to look, find satisfaction under the sun. Was distressing to me for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Talk about, you know, I, I, I was reading this, and it really speaks to the shallowness of Solomon and his relationship with his kids. I had 700 wives. Can you imagine how many kids that guy had? And, and how shallow his relationship was with all of them and all his concubines? Here he calls his son, some man. I'll leave it to some man after me. Whatever. Maybe it's just me. Verse 19, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. He's talking about his sons here. Who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Like, that's, you know, 10,000 kids of mine. Did any, did, did any of you see that movie, Solomon, uh, that uh, 
Solomon. They did Solomon, Jeremiah, a, a series of films. No one came to it. Uh, did you see it? It, it was, I think, with Ted Turner, TNT or something, put out. They actually weren't that bad, but it, it really was this ridiculous. They actually did a pretty good job of showing all these kids running around. He doesn't know any of them, and they're all running around and wreaking havoc and, and, and this type of thing. But that no wonder he talks, you know, uh, about them like this. I mean, there's definitely things in these movies that were just not biblical, but it, it, they were interesting uh, to watch. Verse 20, Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had told unto the son. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet it must uh, he must leave to his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. I was at a pastor's conference this past week, New England uh, pastor's conference, and, and the speaker, Lloyd Coyd from New Jersey, who he has a, 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 a man who he knows very well who work, actually works with the church who was in, uh, a, a financial advisor. In order to hire, hire this financial advisor, you had to have at least $200 million to qualify, something like that. And so he, he, he knew all these people. But one of these guys, he's worth like a half a billion dollars, didn't give his children any money for college at all. And he was actually, he was, Lloyd really liked the guy. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, the guy really liked him, had a lot of, a lot of respect for this guy, but he just, he just felt like he, he needed uh, to do that. And his kids all became very, they worked through college, paid for the whole thing themselves with their job, wind up being really successful. Meanwhile, he was just talking about how so many other clients who paid the full bill and, you know, gave him some ridiculous stipend, all on drugs and mess and just a disaster. And, and, you know, that's what he's just talking about here is that, is that you know, people leaving large sums of money for those who don't even know how to work or the meaning of work or the meaning of life. Verse 23, for all his days are sorrowful and his work burdens and even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy uh, good in his labor. So you thought that fraternity down the street came up with that saying, eat, drink, and be merry. Not even close, man. Solomon did 3,000 years ago. And nothing is better for a man than to eat, drink, and uh, that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. Who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. And so verse 26, he was looking at God. God looks arbitrary to him. That's exactly what verse 26 is speaking to. This looks like vanity and grasping for the wind. I remember one time about seven years ago, I just had the Bible in my hand, and I I was sitting there, and I don't know if this was like a vision, or this was one of those profoundly spiritual moments where I'm like, God almost gave me, well, He did give me sort of this 
brought me into sort of a, a state of perception where I was like a man who was under the impression that nothing in you know what it was like to be a man who, who thought none of this, none of the word of God was true. Just one of these sort of deeply profound moments that the Lord gave me of, here's what it's like to be a person who doesn't believe any of the Word of God. And it was terrifying for me. It was just terrifying for me. I mean, if this is not, if this Word, the Word of God is not true, what a wretched man, what wretched men and women all of us are. It's utterly hopeless. That's the conclusion that Solomon came up to, came to. And, you know, here's the interesting thing. You know, the average person out there, and I really believe this, as they, particularly as you, as you start getting out of, uh, of youth and getting out and you have a few years in the real world, so much of happiness is based not on the current condition, but on the hope of some happiness in the future. If I can just get that promotion, if I can just get this degree, then I'll be happy. If I can just get another wife, then I'll be happy. If I can get another husband, then I'll be happy. If I can um, just get another job, um, that will be happy or make me happy, or maybe another kid, or maybe I can get an orphanage or be a philanthropist, then I'll be happy. Their happiness is not based upon their current condition. Are you following me? It's based on the hope that sometime in the future they'll be happy. And that's what makes us such a remarkable book, because Solomon had everything. So he was no longer at a place where he could say, well, maybe there's something else that will make me happy. In other words, he had no way to be happy anymore because there was nothing else in the future to look forward to because he had it all. It's it really, it's, it, you know, it's kind of philosophical. It's kind of depressing to me about it. But, but, but it, it, that's really the essence of this book is that it, it really is true. You know, Alexander uh, the Great wept because when he was 33, he had already he said, there's no more worlds to conquer, he said. There was no, you know, up to that point, you know, well, you know, maybe if I get to outer Mongolia and I conquer that, that'll make me happy. But then when he conquered everything, he wept. So much of happiness in this world is has nothing to do with a man or woman's current condition. It's dreaming about the future and realizing, you know, something, you know, something, uh, you know, in the future may make them happy. And, you know, this is a really, really heavy, heavy book. Uh, but again, I think it can be a happy book because it is what we have been saved from. David, in Psalm 16, Solomon's father, says this in chapter, uh, Psalm 16, verse 11, you will show me the path of life. 
in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there is, there can be happiness just in our current condition, even the someone who is a multi-multi-billionaire and who, who, who has been able to have everything. Your happiness doesn't have to depend on, well, it makes me happy because sometime in the future I may be happy because I may get back that much. It doesn't have to depend on that at all because you can have those pleasures now simply by enjoying the world. Simply by enjoying the world. Now, of course, there is a time you too. Paul talks a lot about a lot about that, that you can be happy thinking about eternity, and that is in the future, and that's fine. But that's why, uh, you know, Solomon uh, got so depressed. It is a chronicle of his journey into carnality. And so, we will pick up next week in, in chapter 3. But as we go through this, I, I, I really like you to, I'd like you to focus just on that, that, um, that very sobering realization of, wow, this is the only real alternative to life apart from the Lord of Joshua. Lord, you have saved me. You have saved me. And I just hope that it will create in us a heart of worship. I want to end the worship service this evening as we usually do on Sunday nights, uh, just praying with just a few people around you. Just grab a person or two, and we pray for one of the ministries uh, that we support. Uh, I We want to pray for a woman's concern tonight. It's a pro-life crisis pregnancy uh Ministry. We want to pray for reliable volunteers. Uh, they're in need of volunteers. By the way, if you're ever interested in working, volunteering your time at, uh, at a woman's concern, please speak with me. We do, do have a couple of ladies who volunteer their time there. And also, please pray for their abstinence education program, uh, which actually is in public schools throughout eastern Massachusetts, and it, it teaches abstinence. I would say that the Passionate Condom thing is an absolute disaster. If you look at any of the statistics, it is a failure. I remember 20 years ago, you know, talking to some guys about that, just that, and they were just laughing hysterically. You've got to be kidding me. You, know, you, you think that is a good solution, you know, uh, abstinence? Hand out, you know, the whole notion that if you hand out condoms, it'll it'll encourage kids to, to have sex. Um, that's just sort of a necessary evil. No, it's not a necessary evil. That's nonsense. The Word of God, you know, teaches that that abstinence, uh, it, you know, should be promoted. And then also that uh, the women uh, who show up there every week. When they're facing unplanned pregnancy, this will save lives. You know, this this ministry, by the way, a woman's concern and all pro-life ministries is just loaded with spiritual warfare. I want you to pray also for that. Would you pray for that as we as we end? So I'll close there. So just grab a couple people around you and.